Seriously Balkans, the Biapod Talks. Your in-depth analysis and discussion of current events in the Western Balkans. Welcome to the first episode of Seriously Balkans, the Biapod Talk. This new podcast offers us analysis and background to current events in the Balkans and we discuss important new studies with leading policy analysts. Seriously Balkans is your regular update on what matters in the region produced by the Balkans and Europe Policy Advisory Group. So, today's episode is hosted by myself, Florian Bieber and Tena Preletz. I'm the coordinator of BIAPAG and a professor of Southeast European history and politics at the University of Graz. Hello everybody, my name is Tena and I'm delighted to be your co-host today. I'm currently a researcher at the University of Oxford, as well as a research associate at the LSE in the United Kingdom, and I'm also a BIAPAC member. In our first episode, we will focus on two topics. First of all, we will zoom in on the results of the recent presidential elections in Montenegro and the end of the Djukanovic era. Afterwards, we will look at the thicket of different economic integration projects in the region and we'll focus especially on the controversial Open Balkan Initiative. Okay, so let's dive right in. Seriously Balkans, the Biapod Talks. The second round of presidential elections took place in Montenegro on the 2nd of April and were a watershed moment in recent Montenegrin history. Officially, the presidential office holds little constitutional power, but it's been held by Milo Djukanovic in recent years, and he has been the long-dominating figure of Montenegrin political life, and the election results marks the end, at least for now, of his long political career. Djukanovic has been president twice, prime minister four times, and has dominated politics in Montenegro since the end of Yugoslavia in the early 1990s. He lost to the relative newcomer of Jakov Milatovic, Milatovic, in fact, was only five years old when Djukanovic became prime minister for the first time in 1991, and he was 12 when Djukanovic became president a few years later. He began his political career as an economics minister in the government of Stravko Krivokapic, who led the first government not dominated by the Democratic Party of Socialists, Djukanovic's party. He held this office for two years between 2020 and 2022 and afterwards established Europe Now, a new political party which claims the middle ground in the highly polarized landscape of Montenegrin politics. In order to discuss what these results mean for Montenegro and beyond, we have two guests with us today. Anna Nenesic, who is the director, the executive director of the Center for Monitoring and Research in Podgorica, and Boyan Bacha, who is a member of BIAPAG, and a Maria Sklarovska Curie Fellow at the University of Gothenburg. Hi, Anna. Hi, Boyan. Welcome to our podcast. Good to be here. Thank you for inviting us. Yes, thanks for being here. So, um, Boyan, let's start with you. Supporters of Djukanovic, as well as quite a number of observers, have warned that the success of Milatovic at the elections might lead to closer ties with Serbia and also some more explicitly pro-Serbian policies. Do you think this concern or this fear is justified? You know, like whenever I hear this kind of closer ties with Serbia, especially kind of on Twitter commentators in a negative sense, it sounds as if Serbia is some kind of you know, like evil state entity in itself. So any cooperation with this murder of the Balkans entails evil deeds. I understand your point. Uh, and sure, we have Vucic's authoritarian regime and state capture on the other side of the border. But what I think is that Montenegro really needs to have uh, best relationship with all of its neighbors as long as it serves Montenegro's strategic interests. And that's, of course, becoming part of the EU. 
Now, to answer your question, when you say, like, uh, are these concerns or fears or even phobias to some extent justified? No, I don't think Milatovic will pursue pro-Serbian policies. I guess he will maintain close ties with Serbia as much as it is possible, taking into account the toxicity of Vucic's regime. But he's, from what I can see, and from his policies and from his term as a uh, Minister for Economic Development, he's genuinely a kind of a Montenegro-oriented pro-Western centrist. What I expect of him, though, is to pursue policies which are rooted in the, let's say, consensus of all political actors in the country, such as, again, the idea of EU integrations, simply because these policies will benefit Serbs in Montenegro, among other ethnic and national groups, and not Serbia per se. And there's a huge difference there. And it's you can see, to try to conclude with this, you can see from his recent positions on Montenegro's NATO membership and Montenegro's relationship with Kosovo, they are a clear indication of his pro-Western orientation and continuation of Montenegro's policies. In So, to come back to Twitter and these kind of negative ideas of closer ties with Serbia, if you take into account the conspiracy <clears throat> theories about evil motivations and hidden agenda behind his early words, then we have a whole different genre here. And I guess, you know, like it's more appropriate for podcasts about lizard people. Can okay. I just add something to this, please? Sure, sure. Anna, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, thank you. So I just wanted to refer to the first part of the Bojan statement when he said that this is some kind of a conspiracy theory. Um, I, I, I cannot agree with this statement because we were uh, trying to notify the public uh, because we do not believe that in a democratic and a secular state, uh, any religion community should have any political uh, actions or influence. And this is something we are observing uh, th this is the fourth election cycle that this is happening. That's why, for example, Temi uh, just publicly stated that uh, because during the presidential election, a specifically Serbian Orthodox Church used it, it, its position to call all, all the people to vote for uh, specifically uh, Milatovic uh, as a candidate, uh, showing that they are supporting him specifically, which is fine in a way. But if you are doing this uh, uh, year by year and trying to be an actor in a political landscape, we strongly believe that this is nothing, uh, not something we should support, not just uh, Serbian Orthodox Church, but any other religion uh, community, especially, I'm repeating, as we are trying to become, as we are not still, the democratic state and a secular state. Mm -hmm. So Anna. what I wanted to say, this is not like just somebody made it up. We have like a strong influence uh, from Serbia proxies to say it like that. And we can observe it in Montenegro society. Thanks, Anna. Um, let me ask you actually about the other, you know, the actor who's dominated Montenegrin politics for such a long period of time. I mean, DPS, the, the ruling party until 2020, lost elections in 2020 and now uh, lost the presidency. Um, it still has remained, until recently at least, the largest party in the country. Uh, how do you see the future of the party, in particular the role of Djukanovic in the party now that he's lost the presidency? 
So I believe that we will be witnessing a complete uh, change uh, in this party because uh, Djukanovic announced that he will step down from all positions in Democratic Party of Socialists. And this is the first time that me personally and I can say, uh, I can see that the public also believe uh, this, uh, that he will really do this because he lost the presidential elections, as you know, uh, to a candidate from Europe now. And the difference was huge. It was a 20 percent difference. And in a way, this was a huge loss, not just for Djukanovic, but also for the party, especially if you know that Djukanovic has been a dominating figure in Montenegrin uh, politics since early 90s. And he was covering uh, different positions. He was a prime minister. He was a president. He was the leader of the party, which means that he was a main political uh, factor and, and a character in, in Montenegrin politics. So I believe that uh, DPS will need to find a way how to select a new leader. And this transition could provide an opportunity for the party to maybe redefine its image, its policies, to rebranding the way they are like communicating communicating with the public. But um, if we know that we will have uh, new parliamentary elections in, in just two months, the DPS will need to act quickly and efficiently and try to navigate this uh, leadership transition, which will not be easy. At the same time, they need to find a way how to address the internal challenges and to uh, find a way how to develop a strong campaign strategy, especially considering that Djukanovic had a really bad campaign during the uh, presidential election. So, uh, as I was saying, DPS will need to, to see how to prevent internal divisions and instability because uh, we can observe that there is a different forces inside of the party who will try to use this opportunity to get the power and to be a dominant force and to have a leader as somebody who will uh, who will continue ruling uh, the party. So uh, considering that we have only two months to the next elections, I do not believe that they will they have time to go through, through this process. And I believe they will try to choose uh, a leader who is outside of a party, maybe to form a coalition, which they will try to uh, promote as a pro-Montenegrian and pro-independence coalition with a person who will be outside of any political life and who will try to combine and to find a way how to find the interest between all of these parties. And why is this important? I believe this is the only strategy that could help them to uh, broaden its appeal to the voters, to try to find a way how to uh, regain a uh, public trust and to find a way how to present new policies because this is not working and we can all see that because DPS is losing support the last two and a half years uh, continuously and they are do not doing anything to try to stop it. Thanks, Anna. I can I mean, continue, but I think it's maybe too long. No, thanks, Anna. No, I think maybe my kind of clarification would be, um, you've mentioned that, you know, within the party, there are multiple groups or factions or directions. Which do you think are the most important ones? I mean, in terms of which direction to take the party, which you can observe as an outsider? Well, it's obvious that uh, party, uh, former par party leader, I would say, in a few days, because I'm sure that he will step down. I think he's um, rooting for Ivan Vukovic, who was the mayor of Podgorica. And that's, uh, I would say, obvious. I'm not sure that he has a support uh, within the party, especially after losing the elections for, for mayor in Podgorica. 
and especially after we saw um, the, the number of votes that Jukanovic had in uh, Podgorica. Uh, like he had, I believe, if I'm right, only 30% of votes, which is like a lot less than uh, DPS had uh, in previous years, especially before 2020. So this is the reason I believe that he would not have the support within the party. And on the other hand, we need to count on uh, a former prime minister, uh, Dusko Markovic. I believe he would also try to uh, be the leader of this party. Uh, he has a support within the party, but again, I'm not sure uh, how huge, how big this support is. So we will see in the following days how this will unravel. But at the same time, as I previously said, because of all of these internal divisions, I believe they will try to go to the elections in two months with somebody who is a leader outside of the party. Thanks, thanks, Anna. Um, and that brings me, of course, to the larger kind of political landscape. I mean, the political landscape, not just in regard to the DPS, but also to other parties is in flux and has changed quite significantly since the elections in 2020. So, Boyan, how do you see the kind of party system evolving also as a result of the presidential elections, the result, the success of Milatovic? So how do you see the kind of party system, um, you know, kind of recalibrating and finding a new, you know, kind of balance or, or, or disbalance uh, in the upcoming elections? Yeah, uh, it's a difficult question to answer, but you know, like you have to, I guess we have to take into account a peculiar situation during the presidential race. So on one hand, you had parties which formed the government that did not have their candidate in the presidential run. Then only opposition parties participated in the presidential run. And it was a second choice candidate of a non-parliamentary party that dethroned Jukanovic and became a president. So if your question is, what are the main political forces right now? I would say, you know, like uh, Europe now. And I guess we will have to see uh, because, uh, yes, the party system is in flux, but so is Europe now. And they are right now in an interesting position because within a few months, they kind of became this uh, kind of a black hole whose gravity is now decimating the electoral body of all parties around it, left and right. So they amassed a huge amount of power in a, I can say, record time. And I can also say it was unseen in Montenegro. So the, their problem now is that they don't have infrastructure to, to maintain it, nor infrastructure to channel it, nor do they have capacity to fulfill all these great expectations that have generated in the meantime. And that's a problem they have to deal with. For instance, uh, I thought that uh, uh, one good move that uh, Milatovic could make was to resign from all party duties and lead by example to become the president of all, a unifying figure, yet he decided to, to, to stay in his uh, party. However, now it's up to Europe now with its gravitational pull to handle these issues. And one of the ways of, to, of handling these issues for completely reconfiguring the political field is, for example, to create a wide civic-oriented centrist coalition with URA and Democrate primarily, because I think now there is a realistic chance to take both the DPS and the Democratic Front out of the equation when forming a parliamentary majority. 
So I think that's the, the way to go. And if that happens, we are playing a whole different ballgame now. That's the future of, in a certain way, political parties, but of figures, um, one important figure, of course, who's lost his job, and Anna, you've mentioned already before, Milo Djukanovic has lost his office, and he's uh, also with the announcement of resigning from the party, he would be for the first time in, yes, 32 years without uh, a party or government job. He's been accused over the decades um, of, you know, multiple cases of abuse from cigarette smuggling in the 1990s during the sanctions to uh, abusing the office. Do you think, um, you know, how much will the figure of Djukanovic be important in Montenegrin politics? You know, the questions of will he be facing a trial down the road? What is his place? I mean, Montenegro has not had in a certain way a former president of such importance, um, you know, uh, who just, you know, who's out of office. So how do you see the future of the person of Milo Djukanovic and its impact on Montenegro? Yeah, this is a really important question. And before answering, if you can give me just a 30 seconds to sure. add to Boyan's mm -hmm. previous answer, because I, I think this is important. Even though he mentioned it, uh, every public opinion poll is showing that Europe now is um, on a track of becoming the strongest party after the parliamentary elections. And it's uh, on the expenses, first and foremost, URA, Democrats, and then Democratic Front. So they, they, they are sucking in all of their waters. And I believe that during these uh, elections, we will see or we must see the fight between these parties or uh, some form of pre-coalition, pre-election coalition, in order for them to, to uh, survive. Um, I, I believe that they will try to push Europe now to engage in nationalism uh, policies, politics and debates, which is not a great position for Europe now because they are trying to put economic issues as the main issues. But uh, I believe that after these elections, we will uh, see um, another party which will have a huge concentration of power. And I do not believe this is a great scenario for our society, especially after surviving 30 years of DPS. Uh, considering your uh, question, it's really difficult to predict uh, with certainty what will happen with uh, Djokanovic. As you said, we didn't have a similar situation in the past. But I believe that uh, whether he will face justice, uh, it depends uh, from several instances. So I think the factors will include the first and foremost, the strength of legal institutional framework, which is really bad at the moment, uh, political will and but also international pressure, whether they uh, believe this will be important for Montenegro moving forward to finally prosecute uh, Djukanovic after all of these uh, accusations that you that you mentioned. But this also brings uh, several uh, risk for the political uh, scene in Montenegro. And this is why I do not believe that any uh, political party or executive branch will try to prosecute uh, Djukanovic, uh, first and foremost because of the political instability. Uh, I believe that legal proceedings against uh, Djukanovic could lead to some segments of society who still support Djukanovic to view these charges as just politically motivated. And we should not uh, uh, forget that he won uh, uh, 1,600 votes uh, in these elections, which is like almost a half of uh, uh, voters who, who, who went out and, and voted. But also, on the other hand, uh, there is a risk of retaliation from Djukanovic supporters 
either within the DPS or outside the party, which could potentially lead to uh, really hard tension and divisions inside of the, the, car the party. On the other hand, uh, these uh, uh, other political parties, which will form the next government, I assume, if they try to attack Djukanovic as somebody who is seen as a leader, and in the eyes of uh, some voters and citizens in Montenegro as the father of the nation of Montenegro, they will lose a potential voters. And I'm, I'm not sure they will uh, be willing to do that because they need these votes to be the next uh, influential party in Montenegro. Mm, yes. Thanks, Anna. And I think you've, you've you know, kind of pointed to a key issue, which uh, I would like to ask both of you um, and kind of wrapping up slowly our conversation. And that is, I mean, the, the kind of palpable level of political polarization and social polarization uh, in Montenegro, which became very apparent during the uh, election campaign and during the election itself, the you know, kind of divisions over where to take Montenegro, identity uh, politics becoming very divisive. So, let me start with you, boy. And how do you see, um, you know, the kind of level of polarization, and how can that be in a certain way uh, decreased um, uh, in the aftermath of this, uh, of the end of the Djokovic era? If we can speak about this now. Hmm. Okay, I guess like there are at least what I was able to to notice. I don't know if, if correctly, but I think we're witnessing two parallel processes that have been diverging in recent months. Uh, not only in tra trajectory, but also in terms of, I guess, intensity. On one hand, uh, the election campaign and its outcome showed that Montenegrin polity is still highly polarized. On the other hand, uh, with uh, rehashing of uh, votes, we are starting to see, I guess, gradual depolarization at the level of society. So I would make that kind of analytical distinction between polity and society or political elites and uh, citizens. So what I'm noticing is, at least at the level of discourse, uh, is that uh, the, the society, the civil society is, is now fragmenting, both in ideological and political terms. And I think that's good, you know, like... Because what I'm noticing is that the, the political elites who are deeply embedded with ethnopolitics are losing the power to project and then, of course, to co-opt society along the dominant ethnopolitical lines of conflict. So I think for me as a sociologist, it will be really interesting to see how these processes unfold. And if socioeconomic, like Anna said, and everyday life issues will take priority over ethno-national identity topics. Okay, thanks, Boyan. Uh, Anna, do you share Boyan's, let's say, maybe optimistic take that social polarization is less than the political polarization, or at least than it has appeared in recent months? What's your take, Anna? Yes, completely. And I think that Boran explained it uh, perfectly. I just uh, need to add um, another thing. Because I was researching this and it's important to say that in Montenegro, I believe what we have is effective ethno-national polarization. So in comparison to developed uh, European countries where you have ideological polarization first and foremost, here it's about the emotions. So that's why it's really easy to play or to use this strategy to divide further uh, uh, people, citizens in Montenegro, and to use this for your political gain. 
what is a good thing is uh, before the, the presidential elections, if we compare the situation in society and today, like we can observe decrease in, in political polarization, first and foremost. And I need to admit that when um, Andrea Mandic, as a representative of Democratic Front, started his campaign, that was a huge surprise for Montenegro because he uh, stopped with nationalist rhetoric and he started speaking about uh, EU integration, that we need to be uh, great friends uh, and uh, everything similar, which, which is not uh, really something you could connect with the Democratic Front. But this made society uh, breathe more easily because we didn't have similar topics on the table. What is my fear? My fear is now when Democratic Front had a really bad election result, they will go back to the uh, nationalism rhetoric and they will start using this division to further polarize a society and to uh, use this for their political gain. Thanks, Anna. I think we're at the end of our discussion, but as we could see, many questions remain open and they're both encouraging and worrying signs to look out for in the coming months. Anna, Boyan, thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. Thank you, thank you for the invitation. Seriously, Balkans. The BIPAD Talks. Welcome to the second segment of today's podcast, where we will be discussing regional economic cooperation. This topic has gained increased attention in the recent years, also in the context of a purported revival of EU enlargement. Initiatives around it seem to be mushrooming, but so are also the controversies surrounding them. To make sense of what is going on, I am joined today by two of our very own BIPAC members. Richard Grieveson, the Deputy Director of the Vienna Institute for International Economic Studies. Welcome, Richard. Thank you. Nice to be here. And by Jovan Amarovic, who is the former Deputy Prime Minister of Montenegro in charge of European integration. Jovana, welcome to Seriously Balkans. Thanks. Richard, let's start with some background. What were the driving ideas behind this push for regional economic integration of the Western Balkan states? And could we call it a success so far, in your view? Well, regional economic integration in this region has been part of the whole approach of regional cooperation, which goes back uh, several decades. From the EU side, this was part of a specific approach for this region to go in tandem with EU accession, with the idea that there was a need for specific regional cooperation, regional integration initiatives in Southeast Europe in order to help solve some of the constitutional, some of the territorial disputes left over from the 90s in tandem with and as part of the EU accession process. And, so, and I think it's clear that this has brought uh, a lot of successes, whether it's economic, whether it's political uh, or otherwise. Huge number of initiatives uh, have, have been done in the region under the umbrella of regional cooperation. It's also very popular. Balkan Barometer tends to show that people in the region really support regional cooperation. And as time's gone on, it's also taken on much more uh, local ownership. So people in the region are really driving the process. The problem has been, or the, the but in all of this, is that if we think about the general approach of, of change through trade, which we've also been hearing a lot about uh, recently, the idea that as you develop deeper economic integration, economic ties, it can drive positive uh, political change. This hasn't really happened. So this part of it hasn't worked out. Uh, the big territorial constitutional disputes uh, are still there. Regional cooperation hasn't been enough to overcome them. Uh, the region's economic development problem is still there, it has fallen even further behind 
um, the, the rest of Central and Eastern Europe. And most importantly, the EU accession process has basically stalled. And so while we can point to many uh, positive initiatives, many successes of regional cooperation, regional economic integration in isolation, when we step back and we look at the whole picture, unfortunately, uh, we have to say that it has not been enough to overcome and, and move forward on some of the really big challenges that the region faces. Thanks, Willis. So what do you think could be a better model? In your recent paper, um, co-authored with some BIPAC colleagues and titled Through the Labyrinth of Regional Cooperation, you mention a number of ways forward, including that in your view, you know, on the back of your economic analysis, Western Balkan economic integration should happen primarily at an EU level rather than at regional level. Could you explain to us how did you come to this assessment and what do you mean by that exactly? Yes, well, I think the first thing to say is, I mean, regional cooperation is a central part of the region's EU accession process. Uh, that won't change and it shouldn't change. It, it will continue. I think the key and what we really wanted to emphasize in the note was realism about what regional integration can achieve on its own. If we think about this, this whole mantra of change through trade, To really drive change via increased economic integration, you need things which aren't really present in, in the Western Balkans. The one big problem has always been the tiny market size. The whole GDP of the region is the same as Slovakia. So the, the upside from purely regional integration is necessarily limited. Other things have also been lacking. You know, full elite buy-in through the whole period uh, has not been there. Institutionally, not everything is there that would be needed to make it, it really work fully uh, as was hoped. And so we have to be really realistic. What can regional cooperation on its own achieve? I think what we find in the paper, what we say is it only makes sense and we can only have these really big hopes uh, in as long as regional cooperation is fully tied to the EU integration process and in EU accession. Because if we talk about carrots and we think about incentives to really drive change, the big carrots are not with regional integration, the big carrots are with the EU and, and from EU integration size. The EU budget, for example, is three to five times the size of, of, of the EPA funding that the region gets. EU member states get about three times as much FDI per capita as Western Balkan countries. And the EU market is a hundred times, almost a hundred times the size uh, of the Western Balkan, uh, Balkan market. So the carrots are really on the EU side. And even if we think only about regional integration, what we saw is, for example, with the Visegrad countries, their regional integration really took off in 2004 when they joined the EU. So basically, we're expecting something to happen in the Western Balkans before accession, which only happened in, in EU member states uh, after accession. And final point, what's on the table now, so in terms of Berlin process, in terms of, of, of open Balkan, these are not game changes. You know, these are initiatives which are in many ways important, but in terms of the volume of money that's involved, in terms of, I think, what we can expect from them, it's basically more of the same. It's not a completely new approach, which is going to change uh, the dynamics of the region. Great. Thank you, Richard. So speaking of Open Balkan, we have with us someone who's been at the political front lines of this discussion. Jovana, you published an analysis of this initiative, weighing its pros and its cons, just before leaving the Montenegrin government in November last year. Tell us what prompted you to do this in the first place, to come up with this analysis, and what have you found? 
Well, the, the open Balkans is hot topic in Montenegro for some period of time, and there is huge polarization in country when it comes to many issues, and including the open Balkans. So, um, forming the new government, it was a there was idea to to prepare analysis from many points of view from different resources, uh, uh, different institutions and trying to explain to the public, trying to analyze all the segments and all the elements of the Open Balkans initiative in order to, to be prepared better or to decide whether to join it or not. So um, there were many issues on the table why I decided to leave the government, but when once when I decided to leave, I also decided to publish analysis at the stage at, at uh, it was prepared uh, during November. And uh, this was just, you know, like first political analysis, how much the Open Balkans is compatible with the European integration process. And there are some positives uh, and there are much more negatives when it comes to the Open Balkans. Uh, our analysis uh, showed that uh, there are many controversies regarding the Open Balkans. There are no results so far because so far just Serbia ratified few of the agreements there. And also a few weeks ago, North Macedonia ratified few agreements within the, uh, signed within the Open Balkans. Then the, uh, there are the, the data and information used by those who are advocating for the Open Balkans. But if there are some improvements when it comes to GDP, trade, tourism and the rest and bilateral uh, relations, it's not because of the Open Balkans. It's too early to assess what is the impact of the Open Balkans because uh, agreements are still not implemented. The second thing is that there is still question whether the Open Balkans is alternative to the European integration process because the momentum when it was initiated is problematic and it was initiated because of the frustration when the, the, the EU and France blocked the opening of negotiations with North Macedonia and Albania. The third thing is that the area of cooperation within, within the Open Balkans is almost similar as it is in CEFTA and in the balance process within the common regional market. So the question is why there is still the same area and scope of cooperation when it was already there in some different initiatives. That's why there is a question whether it is alternative and whether it is something which was initiated to be alternative to the European integration process. Mm -hmm. So there are also too many initiatives there. The question of capacity, why to focus on another initiative when there is everything already in the common regional market overlapping of the, of, the, of the initiatives and many, many other open issues. And moreover, and the most important, I have to say, is the political issues. Political issue, uh, if there is no dispute resolution mechanism, monitoring mechanism and the other things, and no agreement which is guaranteeing equal rights to the participating countries, uh, there is, you know, a, a question and issue who to trust more, local politicians or the EU. I'm always on the EU side. Mm -hmm. And how come only some Western Balkan countries are in favor of the Open Balkan Initiative, while others aren't? Could you tell us a bit more about that? Well, I think that the uh, Open Balkans is widely supported just in, in Serbia, because uh, 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 there are just few 
uh, actors and few NGOs who are criticizing the Open Balkans, and the rest are also uh, um, either silent or they are, uh, you know, really supporting the the Open Balkans. And there is kind of sense that that only Serbia is really satisfied with the initiative so far. In Albania, opposition is protesting, and also in North Macedonia, there are some negative voices uh, about the open Balkans. So when you put everything on the, ta- on the table, just the countries which are there, they are they have kind of obligation to defend the initiative. Then you have Kosovo, which is because of there is no agreement which is uh, guaranteeing the equal rights and because of the bilateral issue with Serbia, Kosovo is really and clearly refusing to participate there. Then Montenegro a few years ago, uh, the, the reason why not entering the Open Balkans was that the primary, that the first uh, goal of the country and priority is to join the European Union and that we have to focus just on the European agenda and that we don't have time to lose on some other initiatives which are just, you know, like segment of the European integration process or just uh, uh, covering few areas. And then you also have the uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina who is still assessing the benefits uh, and uh, the positive signs and, uh, of, of the initiative. And that's why it's still refusing to, to join. So uh, the, the conclusion is that uh, um, there is no rush to join the initiative because there are still no results. Thank you, Rovana. Richard, let's turn to you again. So the EU has published some pretty impressive data on their support for the Western Balkan and for their economic development, in particular in regard to uh, connectivity, which is a huge topic. There is talk of um, an investment plan worth uh, 30 billion euro. Could you help us make sense of these figures? Where does this money exactly come from? How is it used at the moment? And what are the main projects being pursued? Yeah, I think this is very important. So the the focus on connectivity is absolutely the right one. You know, this is something that has held back the region's economic development for a long time and is in a way also holding back the EU integration of the region. The EBRD, for example, produces data on investment needs. And you see that for the Western Balkan countries, the investment needs per year are often more than 10% of GDP, which is much higher than most of the rest of Central and Eastern Europe. And a lot of that is basically transport investment needs. So the focus is the right one. I think the problem is, and it comes back to some of the points I was making before, is what kind of amounts are really being uh, pledged. The money that that is being talked about, it's basically 9 billion uh, euros of investment, up to 9 billion from, from IPA 3. And the rest of this 30 billion figure is based on assumptions about crowding in of investment from the European Investment Bank or other international financial institutions. So we don't fully know how much of this is going to materialize. And if we stick just with EPA, you know, if that in the end is, is what is on offer, that has been persistently maybe a third to a fifth of what has been on offer to EU member states of Central and Eastern Europe from the EU budget. And that's before we even get to talking about next generation EU funds, which are also not available to the Western Balkans. So I think in the end, we arrive at the same conclusion. The focus is right. You know, the policy is right. Connectivity is what the region needs, uh, but not enough resources are being pledged from the EU side to truly make the game changing uh, difference. And as long as that remains the case, we have to be realistic about what we can expect, whether it's on regional integration or the economic development of the region. 
In the end, the Western Balkans is subject to most of the same agglomeration effects as the rest of Central and Eastern Europe. That means that it will run typically very big trade deficits uh, with Western Europe. It will lose a, lose a large part of its population, especially higher educated citizens uh, to Western Europe. And whereas countries like Poland or Hungary or Romania get a lot of foreign direct investment coming back the other way, a lot of EU budget transfers coming back the other way to offset that, the Western Balkans only gets a tiny fraction of that. And that is why the region has this persistent economic development problem. And I think until the amount of resources changes, uh, this basic underlying problem is not going to be solved. Thanks a lot. So, Jovana, uh, as we're going turning towards the end, could you tell us what's your view on this? Uh, does regional economic cooperation take the Western Balkans further on their path towards the European Union? Are the two working in tandem, EU enlargement and regional economic cooperation? Or is it rather a way to kick the can down the road without you know, having much consequence at all? And how do you think we can distinguish between useful regional cooperation projects and projects that are essentially a waste of time, so to speak? Well, it's, it's really hard to answer because if uh, momentum when the Open Balkans was initiated is problematic, it's also problematic the momentum when the Berlin process and the common regional market were initiated because it was in the whole Berlin process started in uh, 2014 when the president of the European Commission said that there, there, uh, no, there was no enlargement during his mandate. So basically, yeah, the question was all the time whether also the Berlin process is alternative to the to the European integration process and the membership in, into the European Union. But uh, let's use positive signs of this and uh, positives of, of the Berlin process because there are many, many recommendations and many proposals to, to have state succession, to uh, have integration sector by sector, to have Europe or, or the Western Balkans at a multi-speed Europe and multi-speed Western Balkans. So we can use this example and case study of the regional cooperation as, you know, the way forward and way uh, how we will integrate in, within the European Union. So the first uh, thing is that uh, there is issue whether there is vision at the EU's level about the Western Balkans. Second thing is that the regional cooperation should be part of the conditionality, which is at the moment, as it is explained from the European Union's level, but there should be more concrete benefits for the Western Balkans citizens. And then the third thing is that the EU's approach on the ground should be way different than it is now in order to really believe that there is European perspective on the Western Balkans and there is clear path towards the European Union. Thank you both so much. Jovana, Richard, thank you for taking part in Seriously Balkans. Thank you. Thank you. Seriously Balkans. The Beapod Talks. So, Tena, what are your key takeaways from the discussion on the results of the Montenegrin presidential elections? Yeah, Florian, I found the discussion on Montenegrin elections very stimulating. And I think we can summarize it more or less as follows. It's definitely the end of an era for Milo Djukanovic, no doubt about that. But is it really the end of an era for Montenegro, the country? So we heard some encouraging developments on the one hand. So chiefly what stuck with me is that it seems that political polarization along ethnic lines is no longer growing. So after a few years in which it seemed that social polarization was irredeemably on its way up, now it looks like voters are no longer so clearly split along ethnic lines. And I find this 
a truly positive development. However, there are some shadows and some unknowns. So chiefly the new president, uh, Jakub Miratovic, has so far refused to give up functions in his party, Europe Now. And this could indicate that he wants to keep a more political role rather than being the president of all Montenegrins. Likewise, the closeness of uh, Europe Now to the Serbian Orthodox Church um, is still not clear. So we shall see how close the two are in the time to come. So going forward, uh, the race to watch is definitely the parliamentary elections, which should take place this summer. Now, all points towards a landslide victory of Europe now. And the question is, in my view, so if this scenario comes to pass, will Europe now spearhead a new type of politics, renouncing clientelism, political polarization, corruption, and so on and so forth, that have characterized the DPS rule over the past decades? So in case, you know, they revert to the old ways, um, it will be, so to speak, a scenario in which we'll have like the DPS is dead, long live the DPS. But if they do, you know, engage in a new type of politics, then we will really have a new dawn. So I think that in a way the jury is still out and that we shall see if it really is a new dawn for Montenegrin politics in a few months from now. And Florian, what's your take on regional economic cooperation? Well, I guess we also heard a kind of very interesting and, and also mixed analysis of, of what's going on in the region. I mean, I think the first thing which I really noticed is, you know, and I think we've moved beyond the time when any type of regional cooperation is a good thing, that there is such a thing as too much regional cooperation, or at least too many institutions dealing with regional cooperation. So I think we're no longer in an era where cooperation for its own sake is just good enough. The other key point which I discover from um, the discussion is that regional cooperation is not a game changer, so that it's not really going to transform the region in any substantial way, so that it can add a little bit, it can you know, help in terms of economic development and improving infrastructure, but it's not the thing which is really maybe the point to invest most energy in. And one of the criticisms we've heard, um, especially when it comes to open Balkans, is how that process is kind of you know, lacking transparency, uh, unclear in its mission and unclear how it interlocks with, you know, long existing regional initiatives. And I think in the end of the day, we discover that nothing really replaces EU integration and regional integration only makes sense if it works in lockstep with the EU integration. And so this is, I think, what what remains the key point uh, from, from what we've heard in the discussion. Right. That's all, folks. We hope you enjoyed our first episode of Seriously Balkans, the BIPAC Talks. Yes, thanks for joining us and feedback, comments are always welcome and we hope you'll also join us for the next upcoming episode. You've been listening to Seriously Balkans, the BIPAC Talks. This podcast is produced by the Balkans in Europe Policy Advisory Group, a joint project of the European Fund for the Balkans and the Center for Southeast European Studies of the University of Graz. Find out more about our research, analysis and advocacy at www.biapag.eu.